morning, church. Uh, it's, with, it's a great pleasure to be here with you to share God's word. Uh, for those who don't yet know me, I'm Tim Chiang. I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's. Uh, before we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love shown to us in Christ. And even as we consider your love, O oh Lord, may we never take it for granted and help us to allow your love to motivate us in our service to you and to each other. Lord, we can only do so with your help, so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by asking us to consider how we can tell if someone truly cares about something. For example, we have Malaysians and food. How do we know Malaysians care about food? All it takes is just an instance where Singaporeans try to claim something like chendol or nasi lemak, and you see Malaysians up in arms. No, it's Malaysian, right? I love Singapore, I have family in Singapore, it's not about that, isn't it? But you see Malaysians love for food show up, or maybe when uh, an international cooking contest judge says that rendang should be crispy, oh, no, and you see it expressed that way. Or how about in another less uh, inflammatory way, parents and children, how can you know if parents really care about their children? I mean the amount of money they spend, they, they, they take, or if you want to meet up with your friend who recently became a parent, are you free for dinner? Oh wait, let me check if my, you know, if my, my, my child got gone to bed, nap, nap time schedules and stuff like that. Yeah, you can obviously tell. Uh, and the same thing goes for football fans or people who love gadgets and cars. In general, the effect is two-way. The first way that I pointed out is that the object of their love shapes their choices. It shapes their life. If you really care about something, it cannot but help have an effect on you. And of course, like my, myself as a good Malaysian, uh, we're being shaped by our love for food, right? Literally. But there's a second way in which uh, our love and the relationship that is being shown, which is our enthusiasm for that object of love helps display that love to people who do not know it. So to, can you imagine, to the people who have not tasted the beauty of Malaysian cuisine, when they see Malaysians up in arms, they'll be like asking their Malaysian friends, what's the big deal about nasi lemak? Is it that great? Oh, come, let me show you, right? Uh, the love that we have for the object of love displays it to those who don't know it. And you can kind of see where I'm going with this, right? Because in the past few weeks, we've been looking at various core values that we have at St. Mary's centered around gospel-centered ministry. We began looking at the passion for reaching the lost, that the gospel is about Christ who died for our sins and rose again, that people need to know God as revealed in the gospel. And we looked next to continuous growth and maturity in Christ, that we need to continually be growing in Christ's likeness, to be serving Christ and others for the right reasons, to be speaking the truth in love. And last week, we've looked at faithful Bible teaching, that all we do be centered around, be based upon God's word, and that God's word points us to Christ in order to live for him. And this week, we are looking at the next value, which is love for each other and those around us. And we'll be thinking about how gospel-centered ministry is motivated by our love for others. And my hope for us is to learn that we love because we know the God who loved us in Christ to display his love. And we'll be doing so from John uh, 1, uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 12, and doing through in three main sections. Uh, if you have the outline, you can follow it. The part 1, the source of love, will be from verses 7 to 8. Part 2, the demonstration of love, from verses 9 to 10. And number 3, uh, the perfection of love, from verses 11 to 12. Now, we, before I begin, we must know that 1 John is a letter written to his converts, his spiritual children. Again and again in this letter, he calls, my dear children, little children. He ends it with, dear children, abstain from idols, isn't it? And he's writing against um, believers whom he personally, maybe um, in churches that he personally started, to, to tell them, uh, to warn them against those who seek to deceive them into sin, into lawlessness, into disobedience, into darkness, and he exhorts them continually, repeatedly, into love, obedience, and light. So love is one of the main themes in 1 John. But the thing is, I can't give you like, this is where he talks about love, and this is where he talks about next into obedience. He messes it all together and repeats himself again and again, and draws it, like, he double-clicks it again and again and again, later on and later on. So today, even though I talk about love, and I'll focus on just this short passage in chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, uh, when sometimes when he talks about knowing God or abiding in God or, or love being perfected, he uses the same phrase in a different way, in a different part of his epistle, and I'll be alluding to that a bit. So with that, with that um, having said that, let's go straight into uh, chapter, uh, verse 7 to 8, the source of love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So right out the gate, we have here a command to love one another. And as we have read in Leviticus 19, how does that love look like? Even though Leviticus is talking about Old Testament law, the principles still hold true. God's people are not to oppress their neighbor. They're not to rob their neighbor. They're not to withhold uh, rightful pay. They're not, to have, they're not to practice injustice to poor, indifference to the rich. They're not to slander. They're not to hate their brother. They're not to take vengeance or beg grudges against their brother. And that is summed up in the so-called second greatest commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. And here... Better be listening, right? Here... Love for self is assumed, okay? That you, you love, that you care for yourself. Not selfish love, okay? Love, biblical love is not selfish. Now, let me, let me put it this way. Typically today, how will we describe self-care? It will be concerned with entitlement, your rights. This is my civic right. This is my comfort. This is my needs, me, 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 me. All about me. Whereas biblical love is saying that you're taking that instinctive desire to preserve for survival and you're turning it to the other person. It's other person focused. And that's the idea in neighbor, right? Jesus expanded it in the parable of Good Samaritan. Who is your neighbor? It's anyone, any other human being bearing the image of God. That's your neighbor. And that is who you are called to love. Now, why should we love in that way? Right here in 1 John 4, we're given the reason in verse 7 that love is from God. That Love is from God. That means God is the source of love because God is love. God is the definition of love. Now, please hear me carefully. God is the definition of love. The mistake that the world makes today by saying that things like love wins or that love is love makes love ultimate. And ultimately, that love is how we define God, which is a mistake. Because such phrases were put 
all expressions of love as legitimate. But we've just seen how selfish, how self-entitled love goes against what the Bible wants for us. Love should be defined by God. Love is other person focused because God's love is other person focused. That love is a key attribute of God, yes, but it should not be understood separate from God's holiness, His righteousness, and His mercy. So rightly allowing God to define love means allowing God to influence how we think about love and how we think about loving another person. Now, naturally, this means that with God's love, influences how you love other people. John says, your love for others is evidence that you're born of God and that you know God. So what does it mean to be born of God? It means having his life, being influenced by his nature and reflecting that to others. Being God's children, in a sense like how biological children must share in their parents' biology. Where am I? Sorry, yeah. So now, but I must clarify here the wording that John uses because he says, whoever loves has been born of God. And some may take that to mean as long as someone is showing love, they're born of God, which is not true. Because remember, 1 John is written to his spiritual children. Okay, they're assumed to be Christian. So whoever here is that any Christian who loves is proving that they've been born of God. Okay? That they're truly regenerate, they've truly been born again. And that being born again is a spiritual phenomenon of the Holy Spirit. But just as it's a spiritual phenomenon, it also mir mirrors the biological phenomenon of birth. What do I mean? Just as all of us who are biologically born sit in this hall at various stages of our biological growth. We have the very young with the children, and I think the oldest here is 25, is it? No, just kidding. Y'all look so young. No, just kidding, right? We have the mature, the more wise in age. We have a variety, but just as we have a, a variety in biological age, there too should be an expectation and a variety of spiritual maturity as well. That we don't expect, just as we don't expect when you plant a seed the next day you get durian. No, it takes growth, it takes time. So too, we don't expect, we will expect in, the, in a hall the size of this, that there'll be people at different stages of their spiritual growth of learning to love. But having said that, growth is expected. Going back to that tree, if you plant that durian tree and for 10, 15 years, nothing comes up, I think the seed did. Lah. Nothing coming from there. But just so that case, as we don't expect a grown man to be wearing babies' onesies and going to sleep with a pacifier, you know, no. <laughs> it would be weird. It's a weird picture. So too, we should be expecting that our spiritual growth should be reflected in love. Okay? Not instant, but expected. It should be there. So for those of us who maybe have been Christian for a while now, how has your life or how has your, 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 your conduct and love been shaped by God's love? Fruit should be showing. Okay? And we see this, that spiritual birth it should be showing because we know God. And we come to our first principle, which is we love because we know God. Now, what does it mean to truly know someone? It means to have a genuine relationship with another person. It means to, to um, build a relationship by spending time. 
the true relationships that we have, the ones that we really, the people that we turn to in a moment of crisis, the people we trust to with our lives, those kind of relationships don't happen overnight. They are forged through shared experience. They are forged through shared uh, commonality over time. It doesn't happen overnight either, where trust is built and cared for. Similarly with God. Some of us maybe have been having one month's worth of experience with God for 10 years, and we've never been growing beyond that. We need to be growing in our relationship with God just as we need to be growing in intimacy with one another. And ultimately, if you know God, if God so shapes your life, you will love one another because when you truly love someone, you will love that which they love most. So um, the way I can re- illustrate this is like I have a friend who, when she was single, she hated cats. She, she couldn't stand cats. Nothing against cat people, all right? Because you see, eventually she met a guy who loves cats. And guess what? Now they're married with a child and their house has two cats. And she lovingly calls them as her other children. You see, I'm not saying that you need to change yourself, but eventually, what that person loves, you cannot help but love what they love. There's a certain point in which if you don't love what that person loves, uh, there's no basis for connection and relationship there. So if you truly love God, what does God love the most? He loves the bride at which his son bought with his own blood. The people sitting right here among the the pews. He loves his people. And therefore, if we love him, we should be loving his people. And we're doing so in reflection of how he has demonstrated his love, which we'll be looking to in the next verse. Part 2, the demonstration of love, reading from verse 9. In this, um, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we will live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that God sent His only Son into the world, that God sacrificially sent His only Son, Jesus, that there was no way for us human beings with our limited minds and understanding to know a transcendent God that is beyond all things that could create with the Word. There is no way for us to move up and know Him except that He come down. That in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that in many times, in many ways, He's spoken to His prophets but then in these last days, he has spoken through his son that God sent Jesus, fully God, fully man, living a sinless life to, to, to reveal God to us. To see what's God's uh, attitude to corrupt political leaders who abuse their power. Look no further than Jesus' anger against the religious hypocrites in his day. What's God's response to a sinner broken by the world who just desires and hungers for him? Look no further to Jesus when he treats those who repent and turn to him in the prostitute and the tax collectors that find mercy at his feet. And how far would God go to love us? Look no further than Christ who went to the cross to bear on himself, innocent though he was, the sins of the whole world that he suffered and died on our behalf so that we might live through him. Brothers and sisters, to live through Christ means that before Christ came, we were not alive. We were dead in our sin. Make no mistake, because of our sin, we were dead. 
And it's only in being united to Christ through faith, through our trust in Him, through our dependence on Him, that our sin was united on what He, was, what he did on the cross, that His perfect sacrifice, His perfect blood covered our sin. And that we live through Him because when we're united with Him in faith, His resurrection raised us up with Him in glory. That today, we are waiting for that moment of glory in broken, tired, aging bodies that will fall sick, that will die. But even though we wait for that day, today, He has given us His life through His Spirit to be loving as He loves so that we may truly live through Him today. And this happened so that we can love. But we didn't deserve this, didn't we? We love not that we've loved Him, that God mercifully made this, made this possible by making the first move, even when we don't deserve it. It's a beautiful expression. So we've seen how God's love is sacrificial. We've seen how God's love is merciful on us that don't deserve it. And last but not least, we, we read, we're told that God sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, let's be honest. Propitiation is not a word we use in everyday language nowadays. But it was kept here because in the English language so far, there is no word better used to replace this one word. So what does propitiation really mean? It refers to an act of turning away wrath, of satisfying an offense to turn away wrath. That God sent His Son as propitiation means that God's love doesn't neglect the consequences and the ugliness and the disgustingness of sin. So allow me to, 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 to talk about this a bit. Because sin is destructive. Sin corrupts God's good creation. It perverts what was meant for good and turns it into something filthy and degrading that once was once wholesome and meant to give life, becomes hijacked by sin, becomes horrifying. And one example that comes to mind is that when I give my, my children supervised screen time with a device on a program like YouTube or YouTube Kids, a so-called curated safe platform for kids, right? And warnings will come. Parents, please be careful, even on a platform like YouTube Kids. Because there are bad actors out there who intentionally take the title and the look and of, of a children's program. The more popular, the better. And for the first few seconds, looks legit. But insert in it suddenly graphic violence or adult elements that don't belong there, that should not be seen by young, innocent eyes. Why would anyone do that? It's sin. It's disgusting. It's evil. It should be exterminated. And we should be glad that we have a God who cares so much about evil that He desires to destroy it. Our problem? We are the perpetrators of our own evil. And we are responsible for the spreading of the corruption of sin amongst our, the people in, among us that we should be loving as well. And five weeks ago, even as we celebrated on Easter, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating that perfect union of God's wrath with His mercy. That the hymn, right, beneath the cross of Jesus, we have the trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. So that God, the, the cross becomes our way back to God. A propitiation, 
a way of peace, of reconciliation back to God. And if that is the wondrous God, love that God has shown to us in Christ, let, before we move on next in the sermon, let's first think about what this means for our love for others. In the second principle, we love because God loved us in Christ. Now, how does God's love for Christ influence our love for one another? First and foremost, we've spoken about how God's love is sacrificial. That when we're commanded to love our neighbor, that when we're other person focused, we do so because Christ was not thinking about his rights or his entitlements or his privileges or his needs, but our need for a savior. That it's merciful in that God made the first move. So too should we be the initiators of love to people who don't deserve it. Now, I know in a church of this size, in a hall of this size, there's no doubt people who have been hurt by other children of God. And that's tragic. And it's very painful, speaking as one who knows firsthand. I don't mean to diminish that, but I do mean to lovingly warn you that if you hold on to unforgiveness of that offense, the Bible calls that putting in a root of bitterness in Hebrews 12 verse 15 that the root of bitterness will grow and affect your own godliness. That unforgiveness has no place in God's children. Now, unforgiveness, may I just clarify, just means not holding it against the other person. So taking the first step may seem as if you offer the first step to offer an olive branch of reconciliation, if possible. In a perfect world, you'll be reconciled, the relationships and restored, and God is glorified but we don't live in a perfect world. Sometimes our efforts will not be recognized and the other person is unrepentant. But all I ask is that we do our part and not hold it against the other person. Because so often, when we get offended, when other people wrong us, my, my own first response could be, I'll wait for the other fellow to apologize to me first because they are in the wrong and I'm in the right. And it's natural. But that's not how God loved us. Or we'll be in trouble if that's the way God loved us, isn't it? So may I lovingly encourage us to be thinking about how we can be loving others in that sense, in that regard. Last but not least, we come to the perfection of love. Very quickly, uh, in verses 11 and 12. So John says that no one has seen God. Okay? But we've just read that God appeared to us in Jesus. So what's John talking about here, if no one has seen God? Rather, John is referring to how God has chosen to reveal himself that he doesn't, he's, he doesn't choose to reveal himself visibly all the time. Well, but with last week we've seen how God revealed himself through his words, through the written words of scripture. And we've seen how God reveals himself in the person of Jesus. But last but not least, let us not forget that God's or like normative way of revealing his love is through our love for one another. I've heard it expressed this way. You and I may be the only Jesus that some people may ever see. So let me ask, what does the unbelieving world see when it sees us, said Samaris? Does it see a display of God's sacrificial love? Does it see God's holy love that reveals the ugliness and disgustingness of sin? Does it see God's loving forgiveness and God's love that reconciles? John says, if we love one another, not only will they see God, but they will know that God abides in us. Now, God abides in us is one that he repeats a lot in his letters, even in his Gospels in John chapter 15. 
Uh, and here in, in, in chapter 3, verse 24, John links the idea of abiding with God with keeping his commands. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know he abides in us by his spirit that he has given us. But John is not only like changing the categories here because earlier in verse 23, he says that Jesus' command is for us to love one another. So loving one another is not just a means of remaining in God's love, but loving one another is a means of obedience to God as well. And in doing so, John also says that God's love is perfected in us. Not that our love is perfect or should be perfect, that that's a standard, perfect love. Then we all despair because none of us meet that standard, right? But rather the word perfected here has the idea of being completed, accomplishing its purpose, reaching its goal, reaching its destination, reaching its fullest form. So another way we can see it is that God's love has been brought to its intended goal and fulfillment when we love others, the way that Christ loves us. It is through us that God's love finds its fullest fulfillment on earth, okay? its intended completion and goal. So the last principle for us to learn is that we love to display God's love. So don't forget, we are manifesting God's love as, exp- as an expression of our love for Him. And earlier I began with how the object of our love should be shaping our choices. So if God truly is the object of our love, if we truly do love God, if you do know God in such an intimate relationship, how are we loving one another in our priorities, in emphasizing the gathering of caring for one another, of praying for one another, of not just saying, I'll pray for you and then forget. Such a Christian thing, right? I'll pray for you and then nothing happens. But actually praying or meeting up with that person to meet their needs, to care for them. And the the second way, which is one's enthusiasm for your object of love displays that object to others who don't know it. That we we love because we know God who loved us in Christ to display His love. So how does that make a difference in our gospel-centered ministry? I would say that it cannot be viewed separately from each other. That the passion for reaching the lost needs to be done in love. It's not about blasting the gospel from a loudspeaker or throwing tracks down from the sky that whoever will read it will read it. No, no. It's reaching out because we care for that eternal faith that we reach out in love. That our Christian growth should be defined by our growth in love for God and love for His people. And then last week, we've also seen how faithful Bible teaching in and of itself, the Bible itself is not enough if it doesn't stir our hearts for love for Christ and His people. And next week, in so much as this love doesn't come from us, it comes from God, we will read next week on how we need to be relying on God in prayer. My hope for us at St. Mary's is that we'll be known for our love for one another that demonstrates the beauty of God's love for the lost that lost, weary, tired souls who have been tossed about by the world, by career, by things that do not satisfy, that that souls that are thirsting and hungry for something they have not yet known, that they will see our love, that that we will love them. And through that, they will experience the amazing, life-giving power of God's redeeming love in Christ. That they will grow more and more in love with the God who is holy, who is merciful, who is sacrificial, and the God who is love as revealed in Christ and who is revealed in our love for each other and for those around us. Let us pray. Father, even as we've asked and think through things that we should know, we should be knowing, but maybe over time we've ignored. Help us, O Lord. Remind us once again 
of what it means to truly love you, to be truly uh, not loving you just in our words, but in our actions. Help us, Lord, because we are weak, because we're forgetful, and we're prone to forget this. The, moment, the minute we walk out this door, that if you're not with us, Lord, we will forget to do any of this. Help us, we pray. Help us to love one another, and help us, O oh Lord, to be looking to you for strength to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.